Welcome to the Living Savior Sermon Webcast. We invite you to join us here for our worship service every Sunday at 10 a.m. Find out more at lsavior.org. Thank you for joining us today. Grace is yours and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The Word of God for the sermon this morning, page 11 in the service folder, from the letter 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen owns a 414-foot yacht. He calls it the octopus. His yacht has 41 guest suites, a basketball court, a recording studio, a glass-bottom pool. It's staffed by 60 full-time workers. It has two helicopters and a submarine. Its operating budget is roughly $20 million a year. Of course, it's Paul Allen. He's got it all. Boxing champion Floyd Mayweather once gave a reporter a tour of the, of the garage of his home in Las Vegas. In his garage, the reporter counted two Ferraris, three Bugattis, a Lamborghini, a McLaren. He was told that in the other garages that this man owns are 16 Rolls Royces, average value $400,000 a piece. Of course, it's Floyd Mayweather. He's got it all. Larry Ellison, the founder of a tech company known as Oracle. Larry, Allen, Larry Ellison designed his $110 million Southern California estate to look like a feudal Japanese castle. He also owns a sumptuous home in Lake Tahoe 
another one in San Francisco, another one in Newport, Rhode Island, another one in Kyoto, Japan. He actually has 12 homes in Malibu. Those 12 homes total value $180 million. He purchased 98% of the sixth largest Hawaiian island. Of course, he's Larry Ellison. He's got it all. You and I, we, we, we hear or read about such accumulations of wealth and it seems unreal, fictional, kind of boggles the mind. Seems like something out of the cartoons we would have watched as kids. You know, Richie Rich or Scrooge McDuck. And eventually, as, as, as we see this, and often this, there may be portrayed on our television screens what these people have, we inevitably make comparisons. I sometimes do. I look at what others have, and it's like, I'm just barely squeaking by. I'm, I'm in a tough financial position by comparison to them. I got, I got nothing. And then I, I stand on the rocky ground of the Sinai Desert, and, and, and you're there with me, and, and we watch what takes place with the children of Israel during their exodus. You know, they're six weeks out of being rescued from Egypt, and they're not happy because they're making a comparison. In their case, they're not comparing what they have to what the super-rich have. They're comparing what they have now to what they used to have. They're saying, back in Egypt, we sat around pots of meat and, and ate everything we wanted. And now, Moses, now, Lord, you've led us out into the desert to starve us to death. But we keep listening. Because then the Lord speaks, the compassionate and gracious Lord. And to their complaint, he says, I will rain down bread from heaven. You know, this is the Lord. This is God, who's the creator of the universe. This is, this is God who legitimately owns and controls all things. So he does what he promises. And we read that for 40 years, during their entire time out in the desert of Sinai, the Lord six mornings a week, provides this miraculous bread. Double on Friday, the day before the Sabbath. So that each household is able to go out into the desert and gather up the, the food that they need and take it home and be satisfied. And every evening, the Lord, out in the middle of the desert, he, he covers their campsite with quail, meat for their camp stoves, not too much, but enough so that everybody can have their, their daily bread. What they were learning, of course, is that with the Lord as their God, they had it all. I know in your imagination you were sitting on that grassy hillside alongside the Sea of Galilee, and you were, you were listening in. Jesus' disciples, they're going, you know, Lord, it's, it's been a long day, and it's getting late. 
send these people away to the nearby villages and towns so they can buy something to eat. And then the Lord speaks. You know, the, the Son of God, who's the creator of the entire universe, the God who legitimately owns and controls all things, he speaks and he says, what do we have? And they do some investigating and they say, well, we, we have five loaves of bread and two little fish. And then at his directive, the people are ordered to sit down in an orderly way on the hillside. And he gives the food that God has provided, the five loaves and the two little fish. And it's passed out by his disciples. And they all have enough to eat. 5,000 men with men's appetites at the end of a long day, plus women and children with their appetites, they all have enough to eat. The Lord providing daily bread. Same lesson, right? When you have the Lord, you have it all. Right before the account that we just read, the, the people living in Galilee were described as being like sheep without a shepherd. They, they, they were individuals that could not keep themselves on the straight and narrow of God's commandments. They, they veered this way morally, they veered that way. They found themselves in spiritual traps. They were easy prey for the, for the wolf, the false prophet among them, and for the, for, the, for the lion, the devil who goes around prowling, looking for someone to devour. So we're told right before what we read that Jesus began to teach them. And what he would have taught them would have been in, in, in keeping with the words of the psalm that the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in love and faithfulness. He would have taught them that he had come, he the Son of God had come to redeem their lives from the pit of despair and the pit of their sins and the pit of death and, and grant them the great gift of God. He certainly would have taught them why he had come. Son of God had come to give his own life on the cross so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And this good shepherd of Israel this good shepherd of ours, he not only gives us the everlasting blessings of eternal life, he gives to each of us our daily bread. When, when you pray that petition, you're not begging. You're, you're not pleading with God, please God, this one time don't forget me. Please God, this one time give, give us this day our daily bread. You're taking him up on a promise that he has made to supply all that you need. When you were a youngster, maybe you even memorized how Luther explained what's meant by daily bread. Luther wrote in the Catechism that daily bread includes everything that God gives us for our bodily welfare. And then he wrote this long list. 
Daily bread includes food and drink, clothing and shoes, house and home for the farmer, land and cattle, money and goods, a godly spouse for many, godly children, godly workers, godly and faithful leaders, good government, good, good weather, peace and order, health, good neighbors, good friends and the like. Everything we need for our bodily welfare, everything we need for our bodily welfare, God gives it. You know, God who created all things, God who legitimately owns and controls all things for the good of his people, God who is your father and you are his child, with him, you've got it all. The brothers and sisters who were living in and around Jerusalem were having some difficult times. There was a drought, a famine. The price of food apparently had skyrocketed. Paul and the other leaders of the church, a number of them were up in Macedonia, hundreds of miles away, but they made a plan that they would go to the brothers and sisters in and around Jerusalem to help them. And what helped them with this plan is that the believers where they were, Macedonia, voluntarily gave a generous offering. You know, money that would help their brothers and sisters whom they had never met yet in Jerusalem. If each of those Macedonian givers had had an accountant, the accountant would have said, you can't afford this, because the Macedonians were people who were of some poverty. And yet, they recognized our God's the Lord. Our Lord is God, the creator, the one who owns and controls all things, and he's our father. So in Paul's words, they gave those Macedonians, humanly speaking, beyond their ability. Having, having seen their offering, Paul then sat down and he wrote a, a rather famous letter. But he, he didn't address it to the, the Macedonians, the givers of the offering, and he didn't address it to the people living in Jerusalem who were, who were in need at the time. He addressed the letter to the believers at Corinth because Paul and the other leaders of the church were going to go through Corinth on the way to Jerusalem. And he wanted to encourage the Corinthians to give. To give in love for God and for their brothers and sisters. The church at Corinth, I imagine, kind of like this church, like Living Savior. People with all sorts of spiritual gifts. People with talents and abilities. People who in the course of their lifetime had suffered sorrows and setbacks but also had, had celebrated God's grace to them in so many ways, Paul writes to them two famous chapters in particular, 2 Corinthians, the letter is called, chapters 8 and 9. It's the most comprehensive, the most instructive section in the whole Bible about how and why to be generous. Can I read through this passage with you one more time? It's in the service folder, page 11. Paul starts this section of, of the letter with God. You know, the creator of the whole universe. The one who 
legitimately owns and controls all things, he writes, Now God is able to bless you abundantly, so that having all that you need in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. By the time you get to this part of the letter, you recognize actually every good work is not just anything and everything, but it's especially the good work that you can do with the money that's been entrusted to you. And then Paul goes on and he quotes from Psalms 111 and 112. Those two Psalms kind of go together. They're, they're each, it's, it's like they're a coin two sides of the same generosity coin. So you look at Psalm 111, this side of the coin is about how generous God is. And then you flip the coin, Psalm 112 is about how generous the God-fearing believer can be. So Paul says, as it is written in Psalm 112, the God-fearing believer has scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. There, there's some imagery here that, 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 that you end up finding. And the imagery, I, I'll describe it like this. You and I are like the first century farmer. And it's the springtime. And we're going out in our field on a springtime morning, you and I, because we want to harvest this year. We want a harvest of good things to be produced to the glory of God. As we walk through the field, we see that it's already been plowed. The soil is already. The opportunity is right now to throw the seed. The seed that we're carrying in this canvas bag over our shoulder, the seed represents, in Paul's way of putting it, it represents the money that we've been given. So Paul writes... You know, if you plant sparingly, if you take just a little bit and say, uh, I'll plant this much, because I might need some of this in five years. If you plant, if you plant sparingly, I'll throw a few seeds over there, because I don't know what may happen 10 years from now, and I'm going to need all this seed. Then Paul writes, the one who plants sparingly, will harvest sparingly, not much. But you know where he goes with this. The planter who's out in his field, who scatters the seed generously, the one who takes what he's been given by God, what she's been given by God, and gives it generously in the course of their lifetime, and especially when there's opportunity to do that, then there's a great harvest. Not to that person's honor and glory, but to the honor and glory of God. And then right on the heels of that, he follows with a promise. You, you got to check this out. Here's a promise. This is from an apostle, from Jesus' ambassador. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, bread for food, your daily bread, as well as seed, what you have in the bag, the money that you have, that you can plant, he who supplies that 
will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Can I put it real simply? God has blessed you with money, with financial resources, with treasures. If you're someone of the world, you, you, your thought process is, this is for me, and this is for mine, and it's all for me and mine. But if you're someone that hears the words of God, you recognize, no, this is my daily bread here. This is what I need for my body and life. But it's also that I might plant generously knowing that God is capable of giving me more for tomorrow and more next year because that's the generous God that we have. Can I put it still another way? When it comes to what you need, your, your God is the creator of the entire universe. And he's the one who legitimately controls and, and, and owns all things for the good of his children. He's your father. You've got it all. Not only for your body and life, but to share with others, to give. In this community, there are agencies that provide food for the hungry and clothing and shelter for the homeless. There are agencies that provide lessons in reading to those who can't read and English lessons to those that can't speak English and those that actually charitable agencies that, that teach people, counsel them for how to do a job interview. There are those that, that agencies that take care of, of foster children and match them up with foster parents. There are agencies that, that encourage prisoners and, and, and help others. There's all kinds of them. And then add to that agencies that are associated with our church body. One of those agencies is involved with digging wells in India and in Africa. Another one provides medical care in remote villages on, on, on more than two continents. Another one of those agencies not only stands up for the lives of children not yet born, but assists their mothers. Yes. I realize with you, it's sometimes hard to choose which agency would, would I give to, which one would I support, which charity should I contribute to. And no, you can't give to every charity, every agency that, that calls you on the telephone or sends you an email or puts something in your mailbox, but you can investigate. You can talk to people that work with such agencies those that volunteer themselves. You can read their literature. You can go online and read reviews of them. And at some point when you've determined this particular agency is, is helping the poor in this way or that, and it's honest, then, my goodness, you've got it all. You can give generously. Don't the same principles also apply when it comes to offerings at your church? So you, you come to church, and you listen very carefully. 
and you read what your church publishes, and you care about what's preached, and you check it out whether it actually honors our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father who has given us his word. And as you investigate, you make decisions about how and in what way will I support this church if it passes the test. And God, God's tests are very clear and very, very stringent in the scripture. If your church passes the test, then you do what God encourages us in his word to do. Paul's written all about this in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. You, 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 you give in keeping with a plan. You give in, in, in keeping with your income. You give willingly. It's your choice. You give cheerfully with, with a heart that's been touched by the gospel. Uh, you, you, you give, maybe above all, recognizing who finally it is you're giving this offering to. It's all about God. It's all about God who is not only the creator of the universe and not only the one who owns and controls all things, he's the God who has made you his own and given you opportunities to give what you have and do it generously. Maybe especially, maybe most importantly, that the bread of life, Jesus Christ, might be proclaimed to others. You kind of sit back and you, and you read about the people that are, are of, of tremendous wealth and God bless them. What a responsibility they have to be managers of, of, of such incredible wealth. But you also sit back and guard yourself. I'm going to stop comparing. I'm going to stop looking at what they have and compare what I have because ultimately that's maybe going to make me a little bit unhappy, dissatisfied, cause me to complain. I'm going to look what God says in his word. He's my God. He's my Savior. He's my Father. And every day he gives me all that I need. And, yep, sometimes there's baskets gathered of leftovers, even more than I need. Can I say it? I think the scripture indicates it. As far as what you need, you've got it all. So dear sister, dear brother, give generously. Amen. Thank you for joining us for our sermon webcast. I'm Pastor Caleb Curtis. To discuss today's sermon or to discover more about our ministry, visit our website at lsavior.org. Thank you again for joining us, and may God bless your day.